bottom line is, don't you think this rather sacred weekend, it's disrespectful for anyone to go on a march other than to remember the war dead? It's about the timing. They can go on Friday. They can go on Monday, but not Armistice Day, not Remembrance Sunday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of this Zion-tology series. In the last episode, I looked at how Zionism was implemented in Palestine during the 50 years prior to the establishment of the State of Israel. This involved land purchases from distant and illegitimate landlords, followed by the eviction of Arab residents. This could be called de facto Zionism, creating the reality of a Jewish homeland before declaring it as such. The other approach, de jure Zionism, ran concurrently and sought political support for and recognition of a Jewish state. There were disagreements in the early Zionist movement over which approach should be favoured, with Theodore Herzl opting for the latter. It is this approach I'll examine in this episode, from its initial failures to its first astounding success. In the last episode, I looked at how Theodore Herzl had published his book, The Jewish State, in 1896, calling for the establishment of a homeland for the Jews. The following year, he convened and chaired the first Zionist Congress. In spite of this being a small movement, even within the Jewish community, Herzl felt confident enough to write in his diary that, quote, Were I to sum up the Basel Congress in a word, which I shall guard against pronouncing publicly, it would be this. At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I will be greeted by universal laughter. In five years, perhaps, and certainly in 50, everyone will perceive it. End quote. While Zionism, at this stage, lacked broad support, it did have substantial financial backing from wealthy benefactors. Zionists also began the distribution of collection boxes in 1904, which had an additional propaganda value of involving people, especially children, with the idea of Israel. Through the Rothschild family, Herzl became acquainted with British colonial secretary Joseph Chamberlain, to whom he proposed various locations for a Jewish state. In 1902, Chamberlain proposed locating such a state in Uganda. The British had gone to great expense constructing a railway line there to exploit the interior of Africa, and it wasn't making a good return on investment. They were also having trouble attracting settlers to the area. An influx of Jewish money and manpower could have resolved this, as well as alleviating the escalating Russian refugee problem in Britain. Herzl's interest grew in relation to new and violent pogroms in Russia. In 1903, the Sixth Zionist Congress voted in favour of sending a fact-finding group to East Africa, with 295 delegates in favour and 178 against. The division was heated, and Herzl only prevented the breakup of the Congress by threatening to resign. What you see here is a divide between Zionists like Herzl, who saw the immediate safety of European Jews as the main priority, and those of a greater emotional attachment to Palestine. The plan ultimately fell apart due to concerns over the climate, opposition from the Maasai and British settlers, and, I have heard, lions. But I don't know if that last one is true. Herzl died in 1904, after which the Congress decided to reject the Uganda plan and focus solely on Palestine. Herzl had approached the Ottomans, gaining an audience with the Sultan in 1902, and offering to consolidate Ottoman debt in return for allowing Jews access to Palestine. 
Whether he actually had the resources to make good on his side of the bargain is unknown. In any case, he was turned down. He then approached both the Russian and German governments, offering to take care of their problems with revolutionary Jews if they could lean on the Sultan over Palestine. This was a good plan, with only two minor problems. Herzl had no influence over revolutionary Jews, and neither the Tsar nor the Kaiser had any over the Sultan. At this stage, it's very hard to see what Herzl's I founded the Jewish state, confidence, was based upon. Things remained very much this way for the 13 years following his death. With the outbreak of the First World War, the situation actually became worse, as the Ottomans cracked down on Russian Jews entering Palestine. Crisis so often presents opportunity, however, and in 1917, the Zionists took theirs. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Signed, Arthur James Balfour. The mere 67 words I've just played for you is the entirety of the Balfour Declaration. It was a letter from British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Baron Walter Rothschild, acting as a representative of the Jewish community. These mere 67 words set in action the chain of events that led to the creation of the State of Israel 30 years later, and ultimately to the violence we are seeing in Gaza today. The question is why. Why, in the midst of a war, would the British government take the time to promise a fringe group within the Jewish community to support their aspirations for a homeland, whatever that means, in Palestine? The mystery deepens, as doing so contravened an existing agreement with their presumably infinitely more important, Arab allies. Furthermore, after the war was over, what incentive did the British have to honour such a vague agreement? Prior to the declaration of war by the Ottoman Empire in November 1914, the British had already been corresponding with Arab leaders regarding an uprising. After the war commenced, they promised them that, in return for their support, they would support an independent Arab state. This was laid out in the Damascus Protocol in 1915, and negotiated over for a further year in what's called the McMahon-Hussein Correspondence. The British desired Arab support for various reasons. The first, and most obvious, was to tie up Ottoman soldiers in suppressing a rebellion in the Middle East, and keep them away from supporting Germany in the European theatre. Secondly, was the defence of British interests in the Middle East, particularly the Suez Canal. Thirdly, the British sought to counteract Ottoman efforts to present the war as a jihad, a holy war. This was vital in keeping India's 70 million Muslims on side. Finally, it could also be said that a shake-up within the Arab world would allow the victorious powers to redraw the map to their liking. To this end, the famous T.E. Lawrence of Arabia described the revolt as, quote, beneficial to us because it marches with our immediate aims, the breakup of the Islamic bloc and the defeat and disruption of the Ottoman Empire, and because the states would be set up to succeed the Turks would be harmless to ourselves. The Arabs are even less stable than the Turks. 
If properly handled, they would remain in a state of political mosaic, a tissue of small, jealous principalities incapable of cohesion. End quote. Acting on the understanding that their independence would be supported, the Arabs revolted in June 1916. They succeeded in pinning down tens of thousands of Ottoman troops and cutting vital supply lines. In addition to military losses, famine, in part induced by an Allied blockade, killed over 200,000 people in the area of Palestine, Syria and Lebanon. As you can deduce from the opening clip of a GB news presenter complaining about the protests for Gaza taking place on Remembrance Day, this Arab contribution to the Allied war effort is willfully forgotten today. From the outset, there was a major problem with the Damascus Protocol. Prior to the Arabs even firing their first shot, the British had already signed the infamous Sykes-Picot Agreement with the French. In complete contravenance of their arrangement with the Arabs, they had agreed to divide the Middle East up with their European ally. Roughly speaking, the British would gain control of what is today Jordan and southern Iraq, whereas the French would get Syria, Lebanon and southeastern Turkey. The British would also control what is today southern Israel, but the powers could not agree on what they called the Palestine region, an area about half the size of total Palestine, which contained the sites wholly to the three religions of the book. This region was then to be put under international administration, essentially a way of kicking the can down the road. The following year, the British issued the Balfour Declaration, which further contradicted their agreement with the Arabs. Arab leaders were understandably mythed when they found out about this, and sought and received British reassurances. Empty ones, as it turned out. So why did the British do it? What advantage did Zionist phaser confer? Or perhaps it's better to ask, what advantage did they perceive it conferred? Their motives can be divided into two categories. Firstly, to gain immediate support for the war effort, and secondly, to gain a foothold in strategically significant Palestine once the war had concluded. Let's hear history professor James Renton talk about the first of these goals. So the British motives for supporting Zionism, really we can boil it down to two elements of British self-interest at that time. Not an emotional interest in Zionism or a love of Jews, and the Jewish plight and a desire for a return of the Jews to the Holy Land. No, for very specific self-interest matters of policy. They were, first of all, all of the British government agreed that they wanted to mobilise behind Britain and the Allies this idea of Jewish power in the world. They were, like all of the different policy elites in the war, believers in the notion that Jews with tremendous influence in the corridors of power around the globe. If the British government appeared to support Zionism, they would win over world Jewry to their side and all that that entailed. The British were convinced that Zionism was really at the centre of the Jewish heart. David Lloyd George, A.J. Balfour, and all of those who supported the Balfour Declaration within the British government we can absolutely categorise as being riven with anti-Semitic thinking. And not only that, but the thinking behind the Balfour Declaration that drove them to the Balfour Declaration was from this anti-Semitic thought. The idea of Jewish power, of Jewish cohesiveness, 
and of a unified Jewish attachment to Zionism above all else. So Professor Renton contends, I think in line with an historical consensus, that Zionist leaders such as Haim Weissman lent in to the anti-Semitic perceptions of the British government, that Jews ran the world and Zionists ran Jews. It was therefore within their power to bring the United States into the war. Professor Renton goes on to say that this notion was essentially a fantasy. I think if we're trying to assess whether or not Britain's policy towards Zionism in the First World War served British interests or not, the first thing we have to appreciate is the key reason that they supported Zionism was based on an incorrect idea. They believed that they could mobilise something that they saw as Jewish power around the world behind the Allied cause. So first of all, that was entirely wrong and didn't happen because this idea of Jewish power is fake, is false. Yet, if it is an illusion, it's one that Winston Churchill operated under for at least the following two decades. In 1937, speaking in the House of Commons about why the Balfour Declaration was issued, he said that, quote, It is a delusion to suppose this was a mere act of crusading enthusiasm or quixotic philanthropy. On the contrary, it was a measure taken in due need of the war with the object of promoting the general victory of the Allies, for which we expected and received valued and important assistance. End quote. Let's look at what the British expected and what it can be demonstrated they actually received. Firstly, there is Russia. Lawrence of Arabia is reported to have told a representative of the US State Department, quote, Britain is supporting the Zionists for the help it is thought they could be to us in Russia, end quote. Noticing the disproportionate number of Jews involved in revolutionary activity in Russia, the British government thought that support for Zionism would perhaps entice them to stay in the war. Obviously, this was a complete non-starter. Beyond that, it hoped Zionism would act as a counterweight to Bolshevism in the future. In 1920, Winston Churchill published an article titled Zionism versus Bolshevism, which sounds a bit like monsters versus werewolves, where he wrote of Leon Trotsky and, quote, his schemes of a worldwide communist state under Jewish dominion, end quote. Churchill further wrote that this scheme was, quote, directly thwarted and hindered by this new ideal of Zionism, and that the struggle which is now beginning between the Zionist and Bolshevik Jews is little less than a struggle for the soul of the Jewish people. End quote. In a sense, then, Winston Churchill is accepting Theodore Herzl's premise that Zionism would act as a pressure valve, giving revolutionary Jews something to focus on, other than painting Europe red. They could instead live out their socialist fantasies in the Middle East. This is also a perception Zionists lent into. In 1936, to encourage Britain to continue supporting a Jewish state, prominent Zionist Samuel Landman wrote, quote, What is it that keeps Jews from adopting, in the bitterness of their despair, a Samson-like attitude and attempting to pull down the pillars of civilization? Only one thing, the hope of a Jewish Palestine. Remove that hope, and millions of Jewish youth may be driven into the arms of Bolshevism, communism, and other forms of destructive activity. End quote. I would have no idea how to quantify what effect Zionism had on Jewish participation in European revolutionary movements. It's an interesting question, 
But given half of Europe descended into communism after the destruction of World War II, it could hardly be considered a frithingly successful plan. The second, and perhaps central thing the British thought the Zionists could do for them, was to bring the United States into the war. The Balfour Declaration was signed after US entry, so it must have been payment for services already rendered. Is there any evidence the Zionists came good? Various members of the British government seem to think so. In addition to the previously mentioned statement from Winston Churchill, where he claims Britain received value and important assistance, diplomat Mark Sykes, of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, claimed that the Zionists had brought America into the war. In 1923, British Colonial Secretary Lord Cavendish wrote that, quote, the object of the Balfour Declaration was to enlist the sympathies on the Allied side of influential Jews and Jewish organisations all over the world. It is arguable that the negotiations with the Zionists did in fact have considerable effect in advancing the date at which the United States government intervened in the war. End quote. And similarly, in 1935, wartime Prime Minister Lloyd George reported to a British commission that, quote, Zionist leaders gave us a definite promise that, if the Allies committed themselves to giving facilities for the establishment of a national home for the Jews in Palestine, they would do their best to rally Jewish sentiment and support throughout the world to the Allied cause. They kept their word. End quote. In her book, Against Our Better Judgment, The Hidden History of How the US Was Used to Create Israel, Alison Weir quotes a 1936 booklet, Great Britain, the Jews, and Palestine, by Zionist insider Samuel Landman. On Amazon, this booklet has acquired the subtitle How America Was Dragged into World War I by the Zionist Lobby, which I think has been added by later anti-Zionists. Landman claims it was, quote, Jewish help that brought the US into the war on the side of the Allies, end quote. The problem of all of this is a lack of anything concrete that the Zionists actually did that can be pointed to. I'm sure the declaration did motivate the several thousand American Zionists, some of them highly influential, in the manner it was intended to, but it's hard to identify anything they actually did. British politicians are motivated to claim their schemes worked. By 1936, it was clear the declaration had created a big mess in Palestine, with periodic eruptions of violence. There is then a motivation to claim it was all a wartime necessity. Samuel Landman is writing to remind the British of their obligation to the Zionists, and even claims the Arabs saw the necessity of the Balfour Declaration and agreed to it. What he doesn't provide are any examples of what Zionists actually did. This absence of evidence starts to look like evidence of absence. I am sure that the men running the British Empire were not total dupes, and the Zionist contribution was not zero. There are various references to media support, or the fact that Supreme Court judge and ardent Zionist Louis Brandeis was a close advisor to Woodrow Wilson, or that America's wartime coordinator, Bernard Baruch, was a Zionist Jew. But it's all rather vague. There are far more demonstrable influences on the United States entering World War I. American Anglophilia, bankers supporting the Allies, a progressive agenda to reorganise the United States, and Woodrow Wilson's Christ complex, to name but a few. As the Jews get blamed for all the wars throughout history, maybe this is one they only pretended to start. Where Zionists seem to have had greater effect was at the post-war Paris Peace Conference, 
where Louis Brandeis managed to suppress a US Commission report, the King Crane Report, which strongly condemned the Zionist project. Britain then gained a mandate for Palestine from the League of Nations that required it to act upon the Balfour Declaration, creating a homeland for the Jews. This final area is where the Declaration was undoubtedly successful, albeit with serious unintended consequences. As I mentioned in episode 4, the British had considered the strategic value of a Jewish state in Palestine since the 1830s. The development of long-range artillery and its deployment by the Turks in World War I now made control a necessity. The Suez Canal could no longer be defended on its banks. The British managed to convince the French of the strategic necessity of Zionist support, which led them to relinquish their claim on Palestine. Before I conclude, I'm going to play a clip of history professor Eugene Rogan, as I think his take on the British using Zionism to advance their own imperial aims is a valuable one. Britain was really concerned with two things by the time that the First World War had broken out. They wanted to win the war first and foremost. This was an imperative for the survival of Britain and its empire. And secondly, they wanted to ensure that coming out of the war victorious, that their empire would benefit from the victory. I think the British felt that there had not been enough government involvement in concluding the Sykes-Picot Agreement with the French. And in that process, they had not really protected their interests well enough for a post-World War era in which the British Empire would continue to seek to be a dominant force in European affairs. And so, really, officials across Whitehall, including Mark Sykes himself, felt it was a bad deal. In this, I think, Britain began to look on the Zionist movement as a possible partner in justifying a renegotiations of their agreement with the French. You see, for Britain simply to claim territory against what they'd already concluded in an agreement with France could create diplomatic problems for the British. But if they were to make a claim to Palestine, not out of self-interest, but in order to advance a great historic ideal of the restoration of the Jewish people to their biblical homeland, that this could justify an adjustment of the terms of Sykes-Picot in a way that the French would accept. The British were using the Jewish national movement to secure Palestine for themselves. This is when Heim Weizmann is really going to find open ears in 10 Downing Street, in the Foreign Office, in the Colonial Office, and it's paving the way towards that critical decision in November of 1917. And so I think you can direct, you can draw a direct connection between Britain's sudden acknowledgement of Zionism as an idea and an ideal, and what they were dissatisfied with in the terms of Sykes-Picot. As we'll see in coming episodes, this all went horribly wrong, breaking down into violence between the three parties over the following 20 years. In spite of this, the perceived strategic value of Israel, the unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Middle East, remains. It's just ultimately it would be the rising United States empire that would make use of that aircraft carrier, not the declining British one. Thank you for listening. I'll link to the various documents and books I've quoted in the info box. The clips of professors James Renton and Eugene Rogan were taken from the Al Jazeera documentary, The Letter That Led to the Founding of Israel, which I would highly recommend. 
My details are in the info box and any donations to keep the show going are greatly appreciated. I'd also like to say thank you very much to the people who have donated since last time. I've also included a link to Christian Aid's Gaza Crisis Appeal. 